Hello, I'm James Haven, and this is episode 10 of Healthcare Beans. In this episode, I have the good fortune of interviewing Jonas Goldstein. He's the Vice President of Strategy at Vim. Vim is a rapidly growing healthcare technology startup, and they are focused on point-of-care solutions. In this episode, we talk about risk sharing, value-based healthcare delivery, hospital versus provider-led ACOs, direct-to-consumer healthcare, Medicare Advantage, and supplemental benefits, and independent provider organizations. There are links in the show notes over at www.healthcarebeans.com, and if you'd like to learn more about Vim and the products they offer. We hope you enjoy the episode. Jonas Goldstein, welcome to Healthcare Beans. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. All right. So um, why don't you start off and you know, tell me a little bit about yourself, your role in healthcare, um, and maybe how you got into healthcare. You, you know, in general, what's your what's your story? Yeah, cool. Thanks. Um, so, you know, I don't know if any path is traditional or, you know, normal. The currently vice president of strategy at, at Vim. Before that, I was working in employer-sponsored healthcare strategy. I was actually uh, working at a, a company called Quicken Loans, a rocket mortgage. If you watch any sport, you know, event in, in the U.S., you'll you'll see their commercials. Um, but I essentially had had some leadership over the forty thousand person health plan um, that that company sponsors. And uh, Dan Gilbert, who's the owner of, of that family of companies, is just a um, a motivated and really kind of different thinker and was motivated to bring in some folks who wanted to build a better way to do employer-sponsored healthcare. And so I worked with an awesome team over there for a few years to do that. Prior to that, was kind of building growth stage companies that were focused on that same problem. So employer-sponsored care um, and using the employer-sponsored healthcare space as an opportunity to really innovate in a way that maybe in the larger publicly financed programs, you can't kind of test and learn and uh, deploy things in, in isolation and, and have kind of as much control over, over um, your, your population through the legislative process being what it is. Um, and, uh, and it was really inspired by that, um, really saw and continue to see employers as a really important source of innovation in healthcare. Um, originally got my start uh, actually at the uh, union-sponsored trust. So um, the 2010 thereabouts, when the auto companies in the U.S. kind of were in pseudo-bankruptcy, a trust was created to cover some of the, the benefits for um, the union retirees uh, that, was, that, that had been weighing down the finances for the auto companies. Um, it all of a sudden became this big strategic imperative for the union to be an, uh, a really effective steward of, of those funds and pay for healthcare in innovative ways. And so I had the good fortune to uh, work with some, some amazing leaders there and, and kind of build out some new models of, of finance and delivery uh, to get better value for the uh, funds that we had to sponsor care for, for those retirees. And I used that as kind of a springboard into some uh, population health design consulting and, and kind of health system transformation work across um, risk-bearing providers and plans were thinking differently about that. And from there, kind of found my way into the employer-sponsored side of the world and, and, and then eventually to Vim. Um, so kind of a cool decade or so um, tour through the, the finance and delivery of the health system and, and specifically with some motivated organizations trying to make it work better um, and increasingly just kind of personally, increasingly doing that through technology uh, in, a, in a way that scales, uh, in a way that can kind of enable broad change uh, rather than in isolated pockets. Uh, to kind of take what the, what works well in isolated pockets and make that scale through technologies. 
my, my background kind of academically, I've got a, got a master's in, in public health from the University of Michigan. I'm a proud, uh, proud, proud Detroiter at, at heart uh, and live in, in Seattle with my wife now, but um, uh, kind of origins and, and roots in, uh, in Detroit, at least uh, professionally. Awesome. No, that's a great, that's a great story. And um, certainly it really speaks to a lot of, uh, of, of what's currently in style, you know, in terms of value-based healthcare, population health, especially your experience with unions. Um, so thinking now, I mean, you're, you're, you're in a smaller, it sounds like you're in a smaller setting, smaller company, um, and, and the nimbleness of employer-sponsored plans, you know, having that sort of a, a less regulated environment to test out new, new ideas, new ways of delivering healthcare, that seems to be pretty important to you. What do you, what do you think about that in your current role and, and, and in terms of what BIM is doing? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in some ways there's a trade-off. You can kind of work at a larger organization where a 1% change makes a difference for more people, uh, you know, across mm-hmm. more scale. Or sometimes you can work for a smaller organization where you have a better chance of making a 15% change or a 30% change, you know, in whatever problem you're, you're working on. And so it's a question of leverage, right? And um, I think at Vim, I've kind of tried to have my cake and eat it too, in the sense that you're right, we're, we're about 150 people that were growing extremely quickly, um, which is really exciting. Um, I think we were probably in the 40 to 50 range when I joined a couple of years ago and, and have, have uh, tripled in size and will probably continue to, to at least double over the next year or two. Um, uh, but, but we still have scale, you know, we partner with two of the largest three health plans in the country. Um, our, our platform is, is built as probably the most scalable way to connect to the point of care in the industry. Um, and so I've kind of cheated here, uh, and joined a, a small, small company where I can really feel like I can touch lots of problems and, and work across different areas of the business and really have an impact on, on the direction of the organization, but also work across a technology and a solution that's massively scalable. And that has the potential to affect, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of, of, of of patients and lives and enable, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of healthcare providers and their work every day. Uh, and so that's a, it is a really nice sweet spot for me in terms of, of what's rewarding personally and how I think about impact. Absolutely. Um, so point of care and, and point of care technology, I read your article, it's over on physicianspractice.com. Um, and, and it's pretty insightful. I, I like how you frame, frame all the different topics. I'll definitely share it with my network. Um, and, and, and one phrase really stuck out at me. It's taking the risk out of risk sharing, <laughs> which I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, so, so thinking about these point of care solutions that you're providing, what, could you just kind of run through a few of them just to get a sense? And also, like, who's your target customer? Like, how does Vim make money? Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the risk out of risk sharing. I think there's, there's been for a few years a pretty um, widespread acknowledgement of what it takes to succeed in new models of value-based care. You know, the, the what you should focus on is actually not that complicated. And, and there's some, some, you know, I think I link out to some things from like Arnie Milstein and his group at, at Stanford, you know, 10 years ago, documenting some of the positive attributes and strengths that high-performing primary care groups had on this stuff. The, the harder part is the how. Uh, the harder part is how we take an, an understanding of those, those capabilities that are required and make them more accessible to more of the American healthcare provider landscape. Uh, and so uh, the, what I mean by taking the risk out of risk sharing is that until we do that, until we enable 
performance and make it easier for providers to move into these models of risk and move into these evolved models of, of finance and delivery will just be basically rate limited like we have been for the last you know 10 15 years if you would ask most of us who were watching the industry 10 years ago how far along will we be in value-based care penetration uh, based on the, the goals the federal government was setting based on the, the hype in the industry based on you know what any um you know cxo uh, of, of any healthcare organization would tell you if you sat and talked with them we would have all been ex we've all expected to be a lot further along uh we're not and and that's because actually these capabilities are not evenly distributed and um the operating environment is very challenging. And so I, I say that because the use cases and the solution that we have, have focused on, how we take data and connectivity from across places that were, are currently manual. So think about like um, the availability of an open gap in care uh, data on, on an open gap in care on a patient that a, a primary care provider is responsible for for closing. You know whether it's a, a diabetes screening or a confirmation of a, of a diagnosis that that's suspected or or anything else that's kind of bread and butter to delivering on value based care. Those things are manual today. They come across in spreadsheets. They exist in portals. They maybe are sometimes in like faxes, God forbid. And we're making it really hard, actually, for, for, for more and more providers to lean in on this stuff. And until we solve that problem, until we close that connectivity gap and do so in really focused use cases, we're always going to be stuck at the rate that we're at because there's too much risk and risk sharing. You can't take on financial risk as a provider until you're confident in your ability to do this stuff. And so what we've done at VIM is essentially build that connectivity platform to digitize that last smile between what a health plan and provider need to work together on to be successful in value-based care and to what flows seamlessly across digital rails between those two organizations. Um, there's a lot of focus on that right now. Um, you know, it turns out it's a lot harder to integrate to the point of care than most of us probably thought 10 years ago. That's really the problem that we're built to solve in, in terms of what we make easy and fast that used to be hard and slow. Um, but uh, that's really what we focused on. So you asked about kind of the applications and the, the product focus. We're focused on things that are either or core to value-based care. So think about quality gaps, um, diagnosis gaps for risk-adjusted populations so that, so that providers can take capitated risk, um, steerage of, of referrals and orders. So selection of, of radiology uh, sites, of uh, diagnostics and, and, and specialty, um, and then things that are operationally burdensome in current state. So think about prior auth, uh, or el eligibility checks, or sometimes even scheduling, um, things that take time that shouldn't take time because things that aren't in workflow are now in workflow um, through our through our core suite of applications. Gotcha. Now, is your company focusing on sort of like, it sounds a lot like really connecting data um, in places where the connection should have been, but they're not already. You're trying to get rid of the Excel spreadsheets. Um, and, and in some ways, it sounds a bit like making flags in, in, in the EHR so that when a patient comes in somewhere, you know something more about that patient, whether that pertains to a particular model and what maybe what additional actions that a provider needs to take. Um, are you doing something on that level or is it a little bit more like advanced analytics, AI or anything of that flavor? You know, you've got it perfectly there in the, the first part. You know, we are intentionally not an analytics and AI company. Um, we, of course, we have data science behind the scenes. Like we have to match patients from our external data sources into their records and EHRs. But we actually think the problem of taking big data sets and, and, and analyzing them for, for um, you know, uh, productive insights, that problem is actually pretty well solved. 
there's a lot of great brands and great companies that have, have focused on that. The problem that's less well solved is taking the output of those models and making them actionable at the right moment in time in the right place in workflow by providers. And so you mentioned flags, the, the kind of current early status quo paradigm of you know, uh, flags in an EHR. I'm not sure if you've ever used an EHR for any period of time, but the, the user interface leaves a little to be desired. They're, they're great products for certain things, you know, clinical documentation and, you know, in many cases kind of billing. Um, are, they're really good at that. They're not good at seamlessly or, or, or um, kind of effectively engaging a user on a piece of information uh, in a way that isn't noisy, crowded, and can um, actually connect to the, the moment in time that they need to actually take advantage of a piece of data. Uh, and so that's what, what we do. You know, we are a data delivery company. Uh, we have a network of users and we have a base of content. You can almost call it, think of us as like a, a content provider. We, we aggregate content from health plans and other organizations, and then we deploy that content into the clinical interfaces, the EHRs that our users are already using. We're not the authors of that content. Uh, we don't create, you know, data sets. We don't have an opinion on specialist networks. Uh, we're agnostic to that. That's the responsibility of our content partners. What we're really good at and best, better than anyone else in the industry is connecting that to the user point of care in ways that drive action uh, in a flexible and powerful way. Okay. Are there consultants that you work with? Is there like a third party, maybe your group, providers, payers for sure, um, and, and a consultant to help sort of match out the subject matter? So we've actually found that our partners have made those decisions. So our health plan partners have picked analytics solutions and our provider partners have picked, uh, you know, uh, risk adjustment or quality consultants, um, AI models, EX, EHR extraction and, and mining, you know, things of that nature. Um, they've, they've got that in place already. What they need is a partner to help them connect that data to the point of care. So we've intentionally remained agnostic to that, uh, not coming with kind of a preset set of you know, analytics vendors or, or, or consulting partners, we remain flexible. So our partners can pick those elements of their stack. What we are is their last mile. We are their solution to get all those smart outputs and, and insights into the place where their clinical users actually need to use them in real time. Well, I'll tell you, you know, by looking at your website um, and, and hearing you speak, and certainly you know, other, other sort of, um, I would say, uh, media style information that comes out of them, it, it seems like you're deeper in healthcare than, you know, on the subject matter side than a, than a traditional IT company would be. Because I've come across a lot of IT data firms. I've spoken with lots of them. Um, very great with managing data um, and very kind of, <laughs> kind of light on the, uh, uh, on the clinical knowledge, on the, on the claims knowledge, on the medical knowledge. So it's, it's great to see the, the direction you're headed there. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty fiercely user-driven. Uh, and I think our, our intelligence and our kind of living and breathing this stuff is driven by that DNA uh, is that, you know, our, our, we have to understand our end user experience. We have to understand the content that our health plan customers want to deploy or else we can't do our job. We can't be that delivery company. We can't, uh, we, we trade on engagement. You know, that is really what, what we have to deliver to be successful for our customers. And to get that engagement, we have to get really deep in understanding the actual experience of our users and the actual goals of our, of our content sponsors. Gotcha. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit with a, with a few questions here, because um, I'm always super interested in these kind of, you know, mega trends that are going on, you know, risk, risk sharing models are, are big, they're growing, they're happening, you know, certainly in, 
in a subcapitation through Medicare Advantage, um, the ACO models. There's now an ACO REACH model, which is, <laughs> which is a whole new, brand new regulatory thing that just came out. Um, there's equity, health equity, or deep focus on that and social service needs. So where do you think, you know, where do you think that's going in general? Love to get your general opinion. And, and where's BIM positioned in all that? Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. A lot of change even in the last you know week as the direct contracting model has has transitioned, and um, you know I think uh, in a lot of ways, at least the partners that we talk to and the read that we have, um, you know, it, it's changing in a consistent way, which is that um, the, I think the the march towards accountability in these publicly sponsored health plans is really clear. Um, if you look at the ACA and, and you look at Medicare Advantage and you look at the, the progression of the ACO models, um, we're not going backwards in terms of, of more and more dollars flowing through channels that are accountable for quality and overall cost of care. Um, I think you know the, the Medicare Advantage momentum is probably uh, at this point kind of a law of physics. Uh, and in the healthcare marketplace, you know, seniors love it. Uh, it's reasonably bipartisan and um, providers are actually proving that they can do this well um, if they have the right finance models. Now, are there problems in the financial and, and, and um, regulatory design? Absolutely. But like we, we have to trust ourselves as an ecosystem and, you know, our, our legislative process to continue to tweak that um, and improve going forward. Uh, but in terms of, of where it's all headed, I, I think, you know, if you look forward and you look at kind of what direct contracting started and now the ACA REACH program is, is carrying forward, it's the migration of more and more Medicare beneficiaries who were previously in those fee-for-service traditional models into models that have some element of, of risk. Um, and in, in our view, that's a positive thing. Uh, in our view, uh, you have to create the constructs where there is accountability and providers do well by doing good, uh, kind of do well financially by doing good clinically and, and um, experience-wise for their beneficiaries while, while you maintain kind of the promise of these public programs, which is like guaranteed coverage and choice. Uh, I think that's where the, the market's headed. Um, it'll be really interesting to watch how the ACA evolves over time you know, I think that's kind of a, a wild card. Uh, the Medicaid space is really interesting. I think there's a lot of attention there. The budgets are obviously more constrained, but as these states look to ensure quality uh, and, and, and increasingly move towards capitation and into their kind of managed care organizations, um, there's going to be that same framework of we have to um, give organizations responsibility. Uh, we have to have good uh, re regulatory and compliance regimes on top of those to make sure that they're fulfilling the promise of the public program. Um, um, but ultimately, it creates a lot of opportunity for health plans, providers, organizations like us to innovate and think about technology and, and delivery combinations that make care better and keep costs lower. Uh, it's a, it, it seems to be kind of a, a uh, it's sort of the kind of thing that's not going back in the bag. I think the bent towards things like social determinants of health, um, the, the focus on, on things like health equity, I think those are, are obviously coming, coming to the forefront here in the next year or so. Um, our view is that all those things are, are kind of sidewinds on the, the, the broader trend um, that more and more of the American healthcare dollars is going to be aligned around quality and, and, and accountability for cost. That's, um, that's a very pointed message there. And, and I appreciate hearing that, uh, you know, terming that as sidewinds. I've always, you know, sort of, you know, from my experience looking at some of these mega trends, I've always sort of kept this lens on, on healthcare spending overall. Like, where is that going? That's what's driven everything. You know, where is this going? It's going, it's, it's too high as it is. It grows at, a, at an unsustainable clip. Um, and these models are, are designed in theory and, and also in practice to, to sort of restrain these costs. Um, so so this, is a, this is a difficult question, but you know, this, we haven't really seen um, the type of uh, bent in acute utilization you know, broadly across the country. 
uh, that we were expecting, that we're hoping for, the bent in costs in healthcare spending. What do we say to taxpayers? I mean, we've been at it for a while now. We've been at value-based care for more than 10 years, for sure. Um, so, so, so what do we say to taxpayers? What do we say to consumers on this front in terms of what we're doing? We say, wait a little bit, or do we say, wait 10 years or, or what's your thought there? Uh, gosh, I would never say wait. Um, you know, I, I'm probably more on the, the side of, of, um, being attuned to the social toxicity of some of that spending and what it does in, in ways that are clear and unclear to, to the country um, in terms of, of harm, um, you know, in terms of, of what it does for, for you know, allocation of public dollars in terms of what it does to earning power in the private sector, you know, where I got my start in that union backed or environment, I saw really front and center how every dollar of healthcare costs is a dollar that does not get uh, allocated to wages. It's one big pie as those as those employers think about it. I mean, it's not perfect. I'm, I'm not an economist. I don't want to inspire any economist ire, but um, it's not. Uh, it, it certainly is part of the same pie. Um, and so, no, the answer is not wait. I actually think the answer is that we need to move faster. Um, and I think that there is an obvious, you know, as we've learned in the last you know, hundred years, but acutely in the last 10, uh, there's a friction in trying to reduce the amount that you spend in one of the country's largest industries that creates lots of jobs and has lots of vested interests. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of ink has been spilled on how one person's waste and overspending is another person's income. Um, you know, I, I think there are um, hard conversations to be had around or, or areas like not-for-profit hospitals and um, private, you know, pricing and, and things like that. Uh, I actually think that, that um, if you look at not to get overly academic, but if you look at the difference in some of the spending trends, a lot of our difference is accounted for in price on the, in the, on the private sector. Uh, and I think until we as a country get serious about price regulation, um, probably that's going to be true. Now, of course, organizations like BIM, we, we see that as an opportunity because where there's price variation, there are opportunities to embed decision-making at the point of care and help primary care physicians as they take ownership over um, cost and, and quality for their panels, for the patients that see them, to steer their patients towards places that have lower costs and, and do the same job on quality, if not better. Uh, and so there is some, some market opportunity there in the, in the price variation. Um, and obviously lots and lots of companies, you know, and there's probably no risk-bearing organization out there who isn't trying to think about how they can help their patients take advantage of lower cost of care settings. Uh, it is one of our primary use cases that we deploy on behalf of payers and even risk-bearing private organizations is how within their existing referral workflows, do we give them insights into where the prices are higher and where the prices are lower. Because in typical status quo workflow, they don't know, right? Like they don't know that this um, imaging center that's attached to an academical medical center is 4X the price for an MRI than a freestanding one that's maybe even closer to the patient home and has a you know nicer lobby and an and easier check-in process. Um, and we can tell them that at the point of care by, by connecting that data. Um, but you know, zooming back out to your, your question, I think um, there are some hard, hard policy conversations to be had while there's also the private sector you know, innovation that's targeted at some of that cost. Yeah, yeah, those and those are those are very interesting, you know, competitive dynamics even within health systems. I mean, I remember my time at an ACO. You know, there's one one arm of a health system. We're all one family, so to speak, but one arm of a health system is is totally on board with value based healthcare delivery. You know, drawing these 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 healthcare expenditures down, and the other side, which is really the CFOs of hospitals, are like, you know what? That's very nice. We'll attend those quarterly meetings. And, uh, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> they have zero intentions of, of you know, of, re of reducing acute utilization. It's not in their interest to do that. 
You're so right. And it's a huge issue because, you know, you look at a lot of these large ACOs around the country, and a lot of them are anchored by large organizations whose primary business model involves acute hospital utilization. And uh, it's just a fact. And they're all run by great people. You know, they're all, you know, great individuals who care about patients and, and care about quality and, and, and want to make the, the country's healthcare system work better. But their business models are counter to the direction of value-based care. It's, it's one of the reasons we get really excited to work with physician-led organizations, um, you know, companies out there that are aggregating some of those, like the Allidades of the world, or even just the kind of standalone, um, you know, doc-led primary care groups that are taking on risk without attachment to a hospital system. It is amazing. And I can tell you, we see this at FIM, the difference in sitting and working with a hospital-based ACO and sitting and working with a physician-led primary care organization, the pace they can move at, the purity of, of their focus, um, and the results they're able to achieve. As we can see now in some of the data that comes out from, from the ACO program, physician-led ACOs, they just do better. Like yep. they just actually empirically do better. Uh, and so I think, you know, back to the kind of what it takes to succeed discussion, a lot of that's already present in some of these, these physician-led organizations that are that are out there in the community working. Uh, and that is really, you asked kind of who our primary customer segment is. We, we support providers across the landscape. You know, our, our health plans expect us to have a solution for large organizations and very, very small, you know, independent practices. We see the most action and the most motivation kind of in that midsize area, you know, that 20 to 200 provider uh, group um, that are often um, non-affiliated with the hospital system, they're community practice, but they are running a business. They're running a business based on doing the right thing in terms of, of taking on more risk and taking better care of their patients, um, but they're not uh, weighed down by some of the legacy incentives that you mentioned from your time at the ACO. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful that you're focused on, on these independent provider-led organizations because um, they, I, I got the feeling, and certainly it's out there in the literature, they're not happy. They're not happy. They're getting, they're getting soaked up by these larger institutions that don't share their vision. Um, I'm even seeing things like essentially like life coaches for doctors. I mean, they're really, there's something wrong there in terms of provider burnout, in terms of how they're getting paid in terms of what they're expected to do and where they sit in a hierarchy, which is really governed by business and financial interests. Um, and so what's your take on the ground when working with these providers? I mean, is that group getting smaller? Are they, or do they, do they feel armed to sort of protect themselves? Are there, are there opportunities or avenues they can take to maintain, you know, some, some level of solvency and potentially even grow their position in this market? Cause they're really getting gobbled up by these larger health systems right now. Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think there's there's bad news and there's good news. Um, the bad news is that everything you just said is true. Um, the operating pressures are enormous. And you can see in the statistics that the numbers that, that there are less independent primary care doctors every year. And that's bad for the American healthcare system. It's bad for patients, Agreed. it's bad for um, cost, it's bad for quality. It's just, you know, we we, we know that. Um uh, the, the good news is that there's probably um, some light at the end of the tunnel in the sense, uh, in a few ways, uh, you mentioned the, the article in, in physician's practice and some of what we mentioned there was how increasingly payers are thinking more progressively about how to support this, this type of doctor. Um, they're building solutions intentionally uh, to extend technology support, to extend financial support, to extend administrative burden reduction uh, into these independent primary practices environments. Um, 
the technology of, you know, how to connect to things outside of your walls, while it isn't where it needs to be, it's never been better. Um, you know, we like to think we're on the forefront of that. You know, we can take an independent primary care physician live in a matter of minutes, connect them to, you know, the, the data from our, our health plan partners and save them from, you know, jumping into portals and spreadsheets uh, between every visit and, and, and wasting valuable time that they'd rather be spending with their patients. Um, I also think that the, the environment for uh, taking on risk and, and doing things a little bit differently is changing. Um, I think we can see both in businesses that have been built up to, to enable that for independent primary care practices, but also in the regulatory design. Um, the burden's going down a little bit, simplification going up. I think that's been a, a good trend in, in some of the public policy design. So I think there's a there's a, there's a negative story there in terms of how challenging it really is. Um, and, and, and I think you're right in terms of the statistics. I think there's also some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of uh, we're seeing some really meaningful organizations put capital, uh, brain power, technology investments, and, and making real commitments to supporting the, this type of, of provider because they know what we know, uh, which is that these guys are so important. Uh, these folks are so important to, to the health of the overall uh, healthcare ecosystem. I mean, you know, what you just said there um, in terms of risk and, and capital, um, does Vim, you know, there's a few companies that do this, and I don't remember exactly which ones, but essentially they provide um, some buffer. Essentially, they put some dollars on the line for risk sharing, uh, in particular, you know, down, downside risk sharing. So mm -hmm. they will, you know, come in, partner with a, with a provider organization and say, all right, if you lose, you know, up to X dollars, we're going to cover you to some of that. Some of that loss is our loss as well. Is Vim in that particular category? Yeah, it's a good question. It's an exciting space. Um, today, the way that we offset risk for provider organizations is by making the technology really easy. Uh, you know, if you think about all the barriers to entry for a model like um, you know, a downside Medicare Advantage model, for example. There's the financial exposure, but there's also the technological investment that's required to get started. Um, you know, obviously both are important in their in their own ways. Today, we focused on the latter, the, the the technology investment to get started. I mentioned, you know, how easy we can make it for physicians to to connect to to them and and connect to external data, um, and that applies across a variety of of, of our applications. Um, on the financial side, our approach has been to align our use cases and our areas of core support with the, the, the areas of, of performance that providers are increasingly incentivized around. So think about quality gap closure, think about diagnose, addressing diagnosis gaps, about, about referral steerage and, and the like. Um, you know, we've been successful in deploying alongside our payer partners who are basically building incentive models that we then are the enabling technology for success. So, you know, if a, if a large payer like Anthem or UHC deploys an incentive model and then is partnering with Vim to tailor data and provider enablement support at the point of care, right for those incentives, that alignment provides a ton of, of support and, and power to, to those providers who are, are going live on Vim and are involved in those, those incentive agreements. Um, I will say that uh, it may not be too far off in the future where we link those more directly together uh, in terms of, of um, uh, at least kind of embedding into how we deliver information linkages to incentives um, because we know that physicians are humans too and humans like to see the, the fruits of their labor uh, in terms of, of, of taking different actions and, and seeing a nearer term reward than say 18 months after a true up and an earn out and, and, and the rest. Um, and so that's, I think, on the on the horizon for us and, and not the, the not too distant future um, uh, to wrap that around some of the technology de-risking that, that we're able to provide today. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, I'm actually, and, and I asked that question before sharing my opinion, I'm actually kind of against those models where, where you provide upfront capital. Um, and the reason um, is that it's not, it's not impossible. It's, it's not even that hard to, for, for any firm to sort of study uh, the regulatory landscape around a particular alternative payment model around some sort of any sort of payment mechanism that that's really at the forefront in, in terms of the dollars that are on the line for any particular provider group. You know, you, they study that, they can study the history of, of how care is, is essentially provided, as well as, you know, outcomes for a particular patient population. And, you know, they can just essentially sign up for anyone that they think is, you know, 90, 95% likely to succeed if nothing were to change at all. These, these right. groups exi exist out there. When you look at a particular payment model, there are patient populations and there are providers providing care to those patient populations where they're going to win at the APM for doing nothing. They don't know that themselves, though. They really don't. These provider groups have no sense of that. So it's like this reinsurance agency, this sort of reinsurance market where you come in and you provide capital and take on and you don't really have to perform because they're going to win anyway and therefore you'll win anyway. Um, so I'm, <laughs> this is, this is sort of my background opinion, yeah. maybe a little bit of rumor. I won't, I won't call anyone out. There might be a little bit of rumors out there that this is happening, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually dead against the re any sort of like reinsurance industry growing um, here <laughs> in this space. Totally. No, no, I, I hear you. I think the risk of like the financial engineering side of it is, is real. Um, I think ultimately the 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 truth will out in terms of what is scarcer and more durable is that like actual performance that's based on technology and workflow enhancement and um, frankly process optimization and clinical leadership at the local level uh, that stuff is a lot scarcer and harder to build than capital uh, there's yes. plenty of capital out there right to support risk based healthcare. Like there's no shortage of it. You'll get all the statistics. Um, it's, it's not hard uh, to right now to find a dollar to back a risk bearing scheme. Um, it's a lot harder to build provable, enduring technology supported models that actually deliver um, for users, health plans and providers year over year. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking at all any kind of incentive strategy. I think it's a, it's absolutely necessary part of the equation. I think um, it's a lot harder to build the other stuff than it is to find capital to back that stuff. And so I, I have a ton of confidence that, you know, even if we think about the future of VIM and our, our partnerships across pairs and providers, once we have a, a, um, a broader network of, of providers who are, are engaging on the software and, and work that's growing enormously already, um, uh, I think that the layering in kind of capital support and financial support around that as, as appropriate is not going to be complicated. I think it would be complicated if it were the other way around to start with capital and then try to build technology and build performance into the mix, mm -hmm. uh, that's a much harder um, order of operations in, in my mind. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. And, and you framed it very well. I'm going to ask you a bit of a wild question. I don't think it's related to VIM, um, but it's out there and it's growing and it's getting more popular, this direct to consumer healthcare. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? So it's interesting. We, I do. Um, and, and we do. Uh, you know, we aren't, our, our primary end focal point 
um, you know, just, just in full, full transparency, we don't wake up every day thinking about patients. We wake up every day thinking about providers, um, and how to make their lives easier and, and, and better. And, you know, obviously our business model is backed by payers, but we can't deliver for health plans unless we do right by our provider users. Um, that that's just how our business works. Um, now that said, I, I think that the direct to consumer space in healthcare is extremely exciting. I think it's um, really, it's energizing, frankly, to see organizations really have to prove consumer value and adoption before selling to enterprises. Um, coming out of the, the employer-sponsored world where you sell to this big enterprise and who makes decisions on behalf of thousands of consumers who may or may not actually want the product, uh, it's extremely refreshing to, to see organizations really have to deliver for consumers um, before they can, they can kind of sell to enterprise. Um, I, I, I love the concept of going like, direct to consumer and then back to business. They're like B to C to B there's, you know, there's a, a kind of yeah. um, a acronym. Uh, it's not my phrase. I think um, it's it, maybe Chris Hogg and others have written about it, but this idea of proving your metal in the direct to consumer space, engaging with a bunch of an enterprise's customers, and then selling that engagement back to that enterprise to create more value on both sides. And it's not so unlike actually what we think about in terms of going direct to provider you know, increasingly, as we have more and more data on our platform for more and more health plans or some partnerships that are going to be announced here in the next few weeks that will broaden our scope of what data we're able to connect to the point of care, we can go out independently and connect to provider organizations based on an independent value proposition, either by using their own data or by using data that we source from non-health plan entities. We can turn around and say, hey, health plan in Georgia, uh, we have con direct connections to you know, 3,000 of your providers in, in this state. Um, would you like to take advantage of those connections? And that's us going almost direct to consumer if we think about the consumer as the provider um, of, the, of the software, and then thinking about how to um, connect that back to the enterprise to create more value on both sides. So kind of short version, I love it. I think it's really exciting. Um, I think it's, it's overdue and sort of one of the, the few really bright spots of like what you know, web-based technology has has done to make healthcare better, um, especially the condition-specific companies. You know these, these um, organizations that are just solving for a really specific slice of a population that maybe hasn't gotten what they need. I love that, um, and I yeah. think there are lessons there for organizations like us as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 shocking. It's exciting. It's um, I mean, I just know a handful of them, but but like Row Health, I'm thinking, yeah, right yeah. off the top, it's like, wow, oh my god, they just they picked like what, what was that? What was their small thing? It was really. Uh, around uh, male infertility. Hair, hair loss and, and, and um, yeah, erectile dysfunction and things that are just like very, very specific um, and um, solved for that. Yeah, now we're, now we're widening. Yeah, right, right. And then they were, you know, essentially they built out a telehealth infrastructure right before the pandemic. So that, that helped, that was incredible. Um, yeah. The only thing like, <laughs> the only thing I'm thinking about when, when I think a little bit about DTC, I, it, it, it becomes apparent to me, it's like, I feel like I'm paying, I feel like I'm paying twice right? Yeah. I'm paying my, I'm paying my monthly premiums and then I'm going to go out and I'm going to pay for like this, this great like experience through this particular care, care pathway that matters to me. And it's like, all right, well, that's great. That is great. And, and I can't access that experience unless I pay, but I'm paying more, right? There needs yeah. to be some sort of like recoup, right? I mean, don't I deserve a discount or a rebate or something? I think there's a couple of things there. I mean, one is that that is really, I think the chasm that these organizations have to cross. They have to prove that at scale, they can get pay consumers to pay out of their pocket for things they're maybe already paying an insurance premium for. Um, you know, there's also an equity component there. Uh, like who do these models really serve if it's all cash pay? 
um, you know, uh, until public programs are uh, sponsoring some of this stuff and that better experience is more democratized. It's actually one of the things I, I like about Medicare Advantage. I think about like the silver sneakers program and like how accessible that is to so many Americans, regardless of, um, you know, income or, or, or race or, or geography because of the Medicare Advantage program. Now, again, the Medicare Advantage program is not perfect, um, but I think it's a good example of what happens when you charge public dollars behind um, a privately administered program that has incentive to offer choices and sweeten the experience for consumers. I think it's not so crazy to think that if the you know, individual market in, in commercial insurance were better funded and, and as it gets more health, as it gets healthier over time, that offering some kind of connection to a platform like Roe would be a differentiator in, in an individual ACA plan. I think there's a lot of folks who would say, hey, man, this, this plan, it cost me $50 more, but this platform that I already use, Roe, is actually covered and I only have to, you know, I don't have to pay for that twice, done, sold. Um, and and I, I think that's a, a good example of the direct to consumer to enterprise uh, model where Roe proves their metal in, yes. in acquiring lots of consumer customers and then hopefully leverages that to gain some insurer sponsorship. And then that makes the whole insurance market work better uh, for consumers and ideally for, for plans as well. Awesome. Um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, it's something else you, you, you just said there that makes me think a little bit about more, more deeply about Medicare Advantage. They've, I think this happened in 2018 and 2019. Um, they've really sort of, you know, they've always been flexible, for sure, especially compared to original Medicare. Um, but they've, they've done some bigger things in the last couple of years. Um, they've really expanded the, the regulatory guidance around you know, social service supports. So there's things that like non, non-medical needs, um, non-medical yep. transportation, um, food and grocery that's not like directly tied to a particular condition, not having to um, apply a benefit, any sort of additional benefit to an entire population, but to like a subset. I think that's called the, uh, the special it's SSBCI, so special supplemental benefits for the chronically ill. Wow. And um, it's exciting stuff. There's a lot of plans that are taking this up. They're growing at a pretty decent clip. I saw this Commonwealth article a few months back. But uh, yeah, I wonder, I wonder where that's going overall. I think the big, the big issue with, with expanded benefits, and, and this really pushes into health equity and social determinants of health, is, is who's going to provide these benefits? Like the plan, <laughs> the plan says, all right, you can have it. Where's the infrastructure to really deliver this at scale, even for these subpopulations? And that's, that's such a critical question. And actually what we believe is part of the power of implementing and deploying in a more flexible way into the point of care, like the, 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 the condition specific benefit design um, example that you just use is a perfect example. Think about being a primary care provider that's sitting with a patient and you don't actually know probably whether your patient is on plan X, plan Y, plan Z, you know, you probably know the basics, you know, the basic insurance design, but if your patient is on some new innovative condition specific design where insulin is free or where, you know, and I'm using that as a, a kind of uninformed example, you might not be aware of that actually. And you might not be aware of how to access the resources that are available to them. Your EHR is probably not set up to connect to your health plan and tell you that information at the point of care. So at best, you'll have an office manager who will go and research 
what benefits are available to this patient and, you know, what can we do for them? Or is there prescription relief available for them? What have you, or you can connect to a platform that detects the context of that patient and their insurance design in your workflow and proactively tells you, Hey, Jonas has some benefits. He's not using, um, they might help him save money on, on, on X medications or get access to X social support, that kind of stuff. Like we want to be the infrastructure that allows policy and plan design to move fast because right? we can make that change. We're a web-based platform. Um, you know, we can deploy that kind of change over the air. We don't need to go back into our practices, par- our partner practices and rewire some new connection through HL7 or Fire or this kind of old way of, of connecting into data standards. Like we can just deploy a new module that has to do with social determinants of health or that spotlights certain opportunities and certain plans for relief on prescription drug costs or connection to, um, you know, food security networks or housing, or whatever it might be dynamically into the workflow so that doctors don't have to stay current on these plan design changes. They'll just know what resources are available to their patient in real time. And the the health plans can do their innovation and the policymakers can do their innovation and not worry about how it's actually going to get translated into delivery at the point of care. That's the dream for us. Uh, We want to be the enablement platform for payment design change, for health plans and and public programs that want to test things. And we want to remove all that burden of tracking all of that from the provider organization, which is where it is currently. Uh, And and that's an exciting opportunity for us, actually. That is, that is. I didn't realize that, that you have a benefits module that can support that sort of work. So we have a connection to all of our health plans eligibility feeds, right? Um, And we can, given the right level of information, we can surface uh, certain elements that patients are, are eligible for, not only in a kind of patient view within the interface, but say when a provider goes to make a referral, um, if we want to spotlight that, hey, there's some other eligibility options for this 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 patient. For example, if they're a rural patient, if we want to spotlight the fact that um, they're eligible for a virtual consult um, through a, a, a secondary solution that the health plan is paid for, we can embed that in, in the same kind of core application uh, to widen that provider's lens and know more about their patient based on our direct connection to the, their, their health plan. Awesome. Now, this is great. I love this conversation, Jonas. Yeah, it's, awesome. <laughs> it's, great. it's great. It's great to hear you speak. So, so Jonas, in, in a nutshell, in, in your words, what is VIM? Where does it provide value in this, in this crazy healthcare landscape that we're in? Yeah, crazy indeed. Um, So Vim is a a point of care connection platform. So we take data from outside of workflow that normally comes from our health plan partners and and data sponsors and embed that directly into provider clinical interfaces, which basically means the electronic health record uh, in a context aware and powerful way that's really easy to connect to and very powerful in terms of of what it can help users do with with the data that we connect. Essentially, we exist to take things that are out of workflow and that require manual work by providers to go get it and find it. And we connect that directly into their EHR while they're sitting with the patient that 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 data is relevant for. And what we find is that um, reduces administrative burden. It kind of raises the ceiling on what's possible in terms of of value-based care performance. And it it makes experience better across the board um, between payer and, and provider relationships and efforts to, to improve healthcare. Okay. Okay. And here's a more challenging question. Awesome. When you get in there and when you do this, it, are there still any remnants of Microsoft Excel? <laughs> uh, I don't think Microsoft Excel will ever go completely away. Um, and, and so, you know, of course there are, uh, 
operational backend things that, that, you know, um, any good kind of ops manager is always going to have a spreadsheet somewhere. Um, our goal is to get doctors out of them. Uh, we don't, we think that spreadsheets have an awesome role to play and process improvement and, and, you know, operational efficiency. Um, I've got a few open on my desktop right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think that a primary care physician should spend much of their day hunting through a spreadsheet, uh, to deliver patient care. And that is, that is a fair response. Had you said, yes, you'll never see another Excel document. I'd say, all right, that's beautiful. <laughs> I don't Utopian. believe you. Utopian. No, I, I, I'm, an, I'm an Excel believer. I would never, I would never banish, you know, my good friend Excel to the, the trash pile. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's fair. That's, that's more than fair. Um, awesome. <laughs> it, it's great. It's great to have you. I really enjoyed this conversation, Jonas. Too, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, if in the future there's other things you'd like to talk about, more than happy to have you back on the show.